You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Paramount Pictures presents Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Jessica. Jessica. Who are you? Why have you been following me? I'm in your pod. You want to die, girl. You want to die. Jessica to death. The screen has captured cold, deadly horror before, but this time it's all turned loose in your direction. Leave me! Leave me! Let's scare Jessica to death. Rated GP. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Ooh, that's scary. Also along with us this week is Mr. Cameron Cloutier, filmmaker and creator of the website slash podcast, Obnoxious and Anonymous. You know, I was just thinking, uh, grave etchings really would give a bedroom more character. This week we're looking at the 1971 film, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Directed by John D. Hancock, the film tells the tale of, you guessed it, Jessica, a woman who's back from a time away at an asylum and spending some quiet time in the country with her husband and their friend. Jessica's plagued with visions of a little girl in white, as well as a monstrous woman in the local lake. Are the unfriendly people of the country town trying to gaslight her? Is it the strange hippie girl they find living in the house? Or is it something truly supernatural? We'll talk about all those things as we look at Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Cameron, as our guest this week, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? The first time I saw it was in the mid to late 90s. At the time, I was uh, uh, managing a art house movie theater uh, that's sadly gone now. It was called the Dream Theater. And also, and then on the weekends, I was managing at a video store, mom and pop video store, all called Movie Mart. And in the horror section, uh, this title, uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, was similar to titles like Town That Dreads Sundown and Happy Birthday to Me, where they sat on the shelf. Nobody rented them. They collected a pile of dust on the cover. So that was one of the – I remember just having to dust that cover over and over again. And for a long time, I thought actually it was a black exploitation horror film because to this day, I swear that's Ruby D on the cover. But you know, one of the great things about working in a uh, video store is obviously you don't have to pay the three dollars and twenty-two cents to rent a title. So uh, I took it home one night, put it on, was really surprised because, like I said, I thought it was a black exploitation horror film. It really has a creepy spell to it, uh, which I think you know still holds to this day. I thought that uh, it had a very interesting social commentary, like Last House on the Left, but obviously way more subtle about it. Because of the year it was made, 1971, it predates uh, other supernatural spookiness, like Don't Look Now, uh, you know, uh, towns coming after one individual, like uh, The Wicker Man. So I thought it was really interesting, and uh, um, one thing that just really um, got to me was that a lot of horror films are – um, characters show up and uh, make choices, and based off their choices, things unravel. Whereas this film kind of like, because of the way it begins and how it wraps up at the end, sort of similar, it plays very much like a Greek tragedy. Like, these characters are doomed from frame one. And so uh, that really stuck out to me. The other thing I'm amazed by was that John Hancock signed the Declaration of Independence and then almost 200 years later made Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I mean, what did he do in the interim between those 200 years? 
So I was wondering if there were some powdered wigs on the set. Anyway, um, I had not seen this until you said that we were going to do it on the show. And the title to me is a little... I don't know, like, I can understand why I collected dust on the shelf, to be quite honest, because the title is kind of like, yeah, um, maybe there could have been a better title for it. The one thing that I was kind of uh, impressed with as I was watching it is that it is a uh, an independent film. It was put out, I guess, at the time by Paramount, which I wouldn't necessarily see Paramount as taking risk on an independent film like this. This seems like something that would have been up the alley of of say like in the era, maybe like a new line or something like that. Although they were just starting to get their, their feet under them. And also just, um, how much the audio plays in here and being a, an audio guy, being a radio guy by career, it's, uh, it, it's great to see how all of that kind of works. So it was, uh, it was the delightful little film that, uh, I hadn't seen before. And I also was going to say, Mike, uh, thinking back to our, our friend on, uh, Haunting of Julia, uh, Killed Janice, seems like this would be right up her alley for that book that she did, House Psychotic Women. Yeah, I totally can see that because this really does play a lot with gender, and I was kind of surprised to see the way that the roles were and, you know, that whole, like, last girl kind of thing that goes on in most horror films. And this one kind of is a, a little bit different than that, so I was kind of surprised by it. I remember running across this one. I was probably in high school at the time. I didn't watch it. A friend of mine actually told me not to watch it because he had rented it, um, probably because he knew a girl named Jessica and thought it would be kind of funny to watch this movie called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And he just said, this movie sucks. It is just so boring. So I stayed away for, from it for years and years. And we were talking before the show trying to figure out why we are doing this particular movie because I hadn't seen it until maybe – six eight months ago rob's seen it fairly recently and we're thinking maybe it was a listener request and we are really bad at keeping track of that so when i finally sat down and watched it it was not nearly as bad as i had in my head i really kind of was entranced by this film the voiceover really kind of kept me going the music was great very atmospheric very gothic it really reminded me of kind of this 1800s type story this whole thing of the woman coming back from the asylum really kind of struck me kind of reminded me almost like um something like a daphne du maurier would write so i was pleased to watch this and see how it twisted and turned and it plays a lot with the is it supernatural is it not kind of thing and there are some definite moments there where it's like okay i think that we're going into ghost territory but then it might pull the wool over my eyes or pull the rug out from under me or do some sort of other uh, you know cliche kind of thing so let's get into the plot a little bit more we did talk about the general gist of it is that jessica is back from the asylum and she and her husband are going up to um, some place up in the, it looks like in New England, Stephen King territory type of thing, along with their buddy. They come up to, they're driving a hearse, which is pretty great, and they, they drive up to this little New England town and go into their um, house that they have, their little cabin. It's kind of more of a Victorian type house and come upon a hippie that is living there. 
But you missed the first part, which reminded me of my youth, which was actually going to the cemetery. Why does that remind you of your youth? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my dad and I used to go uh, – we have a lot of family in Canada. And we would go to cemeteries, to graveyards, and we would do grave rubbings. And a lot of the reason behind it wasn't because we wanted a souvenir of, oh, hey, that's so-and-so's grave. was that if you're looking at old gravestones that are over usually 100, 150 years old, they're kind of hard to read because they've been weathered so badly. And the only way to really be able to read them is to take a piece of charcoal or whatever and rub it against a paper. And then you go, ah, okay, now I can read what the words on this on this gravestone says. So I remember as a little kid, two things in terms of genealogy research with my dad was going to libraries and reading old newspapers on microfilm and looking up obits and things like that. And then actually going to graveyards and cemeteries throughout certain parts of Ontario and doing grave rubbings with my dad. So when you say you have a lot of relatives in Canada, you mean you have a lot of dead relatives in Canada? Well, you know, most people uh, to have been here are uh, no longer here. So there you go. And Mike, uh, don't forget uh, that when they're driving into the town, they come across the meanest assortment of old men not seen since uh, David Lynch's The Straight Story. <laughs> yeah, a lot of really creepy old guys. Are there any women in this town? I didn't see any, but one of them like hits Jessica's husband in the head as he's getting in the car. You know, it's like, what the hell's that? <laughs> they don't need uh, women; they have chickens, so the chickens keep them happy. I guess a little Larry Flint action going on there. Exactly. But the chi- but the chickens have like women's screams. <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, that is a really disconcerting scene. So then they end up from the graveyard to this house. And it's my take that maybe the house was a family member's house that they inherited or had been abandoned or something. And we get that they had moved from New York. They used to live in New York. And now it's like, well, we want to we want to kick back and whittle some. So we've moved up into Connecticut or something. And I'm guessing that this house is on an island due to the ferryman that's kind of taking them across and refuses later on to let Jessica kind of go back to the mainland. Is that your impression, too? Yeah, I got that as well. And also you could see sort of maybe a parallel with the ferryman is, you know, this old idea of the Greek, you know, the Greek myth of, you know, crossing the river Styx. And once you cross over into, you know, Hades or whatever, you can't go back kind of thing. You cross into the land of the dead. And two times uh, when when they're on the ferry, when, when, when they're first getting on the ferry, you hear – a woman screaming, and then as they're approaching the gate to land, you know, the ferry, uh, you hear more screams. So it's like it, death is here, you know, and they're and they're heading towards it. is one of the first guys where we get this kind of uncomfortable close-up of him. And then later on, when we see more of these old guys in town, we get some, you know, almost almost fisheye lens type close-ups of these guys, just kind of leering and looming and stuff. And it's like, okay, yeah, there's something definitely going on with these guys. What did you guys think when it came to the woman who was in the house? I was thinking at first that she is somebody that Jessica is seeing in her head, and then I love how quickly her husband's like, I see her too. I was really puzzled by that scene because 
again, this is a different time, right, when they filmed this movie because uh, I think today people would be kind of terrified <laughs> if they saw someone running through their house because the we see her uh, – the person's legs so obviously they saw the full person but uh jessica's just kind of moving from room to room with a big smile on her face like nothing's big happening but me personally i would have like run outside and <laughs> waited to see who it was yeah called the police get the shotgun out whatever it takes but yeah i was i mean it's 19 what 71 that this movie comes out so we're a little past manson type thing i'm thinking that by this point hippies are a little scary but these folks were not that scared of her maybe because they kind of seem like fellow hippies oh definitely I, i think there's some hesitancy on uh jessica's husband's part uh duncan but she seems to want to kind of flirt with um with one foot in uh, conservatism and one foot in hippie land so and they're like oh sure come on stay with us this will be great how long have you been staying here where how how are you getting around and all this kind of stuff and it just yeah i was like oh really you're gonna ask the stranger to stay but and at this moment you kind of see jessica is really trying to hold it together because there's a scene in the kitchen early on where she knows that her husband kind of has eyes for this young woman named Emily. And she even like hypes her up, uh, hypes him up to Emily by saying, Oh, you know, he played with the Philharmonic and all that. Uh, and then she casually just says, Oh, I'm the nut. So it's like, she's kind of like saying, yeah, my husband's great, but bitch back the fuck up. (laughs) I also felt too, that there was this whole thing where it's a couple and a single guy. And it's like, well, if she's here, then at least we can pair off the bearded guy over there with her. Woody. And he doesn't waste any time. Yeah, but he's he gets rebuffed fairly quickly, though, doesn't he? Yeah. So it's like the wrong pairing is going on. Emily wants to get with Duncan, who's the husband of Jessica, and Woody's left out in the cold, and thus Jessica's kind of left on the edges as well. Right, and, and Woody seems... Uh, it seems like his role is to just get out of the house and, and spray the apple fields. <laughs> so He really likes spraying those apple fields, man. <laughs> and, and Yeah, at one point, he sprays it for nine hours straight if you follow the timeline. So And those were back in the good old DDT days. So some kid somewhere in that town probably has birth defects on top of it. Thanks, Woody. Six arms and, a, and a, another head growing on top of his head. That could and be I, the sequel. And I know that uh, jumping ahead here, but there's a moment where Jessica runs through, and I was like, "Is that DDT she's running through, or is that water?" Because oh god, <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping that it was stunt DDT at that point. But yeah, I love how there's even one point where she goes to touch like a piece of fruit or something. He's like, "Whoa, whoa, that's poison." You, you know, it's funny. I thought that was, uh, I mean, even though I knew it was about the DDT, I thought that was kind of like a biblical reference, you know. And it definitely seems like there's a lot of different references and different layers being played with here. I mean, there's the idea of the spirits coming back at one point. I mean, I mean, before the night is even done, the first night that they are back at this place, it's like, hey, let's have a seance. And I'm like, oh, that is the worst thing that you can possibly do right now. <laughs> I do not want to have a seance at this creepy old house with these bunch of hippies. Especially since Jessica just got out of a mental institution. And her voiceover, her inner monologue is working overtime. I mean, there is not too many quiet moments in this film. It is almost constant voiceover. It's like almost up there with Blast of Silence. Would you agree, Rob? Yeah, it's blasting the silence like Blast of Silence. It 
the the one thing, like I said before uh, in the open in my original take on the film, is that it is the soundtrack that makes this movie work. I think if the sound wasn't there, it would just be kind of standard because it is kind of independent and low budget. And it's not to say that it's poorly shot, but no, it's it's the sound that makes this thing creepy for people when they watch it because – like some of the shots aren't really all that creepy. It's like just oh, it's like a woman in a room and there's a candle. But it's like when you add that. I'm alive. I'm still alive. Abigail I'm never alive. got to wear that wedding dress. Drowned in the cold. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> all that stuff. It's like whoa. It like adds this uh, total other level to it that uh, really brings out the creep factor. And what's interesting, too, is um, doing some research on this is that all of that voiceover was added in post. So it wasn't even a part of the script. So, I mean, th- so we're talking that the film they shot was was supposed to be a completely different movie than what we got. But I think what we got is a better film. Yeah, definitely. And I like that the voiceover, you don't really know if it is her internal monologue most of the time it is but then there is this kind of other voice and it's like is this other voice coming from her or is it coming from somewhere else there's one part when emily is in the room with her and it seems like emily is speaking to her with this other voice but then you're like i am questioning the validity of this because our main character has been away and so we don't know how much of this is true and how much of it is her fantasy, her auditory hallucinations, her visual hallucinations. I mean, it's very interesting to me that throughout the movie, she's questioning herself. We're questioning what she's seeing, what she's hearing. And I think that that's a really kind of clever way to go about things because most of the time you think that your protagonist in a horror film is going to be fairly reliable. What they see is really what's going on. But in this one, you have that other level of, I'm not really sure if this person is really here. There's this girl in white that Jessica sees fairly early into the film. And is she real? Is she not? And there's one part later on where her husband is chasing her and they actually catch this girl. And it's like, Oh, okay. I thought for sure this whole time that she was just a figment of Jessica's imagination. It doesn't necessarily go that much farther though. It's interesting. We talked about all the men in the town that this would be one of the other few females that's on this Island community. There's no other women around. So what is she doing here? This mute girl that, Maybe she is a portent of of bad things, or maybe she's a victim of these guys. We don't know, but it was very interesting to me that for much of it, I'm thinking, oh, she's just an illusion. I think almost the film is is doing both at once, because I think that – I think Jessica is slowly going crazy, but – the film has uh, a few scenes that do go away from Jessica's, uh, you know, she, where she's not even in the scene. And and the supernatural elements continue to play on. And they don't give a hint that it's like just uh, Jessica's imagination thinking about this stuff. So I almost feel like there is supernatural things going on and Jessica's going crazy. So where do we go from here? We have Emily coming and kind of being with them. We have all this tension going on between the different characters. And then we kind of add to that with them going going into town and trying to sell these antiques that are at the house. And we find out that the house has a history. I mean, this is a possibly 
proper haunted house film at the same time. It's like they just keep layering different possibilities on as we go through this. And we get to hear the story of this woman who used to live in this house and what happened to her and how she had this dress. And so we get all of these things kind of planted in at this particular point. And I found it very clever the way they kind of used this as a tool of exposition and then doled out some of the things as we went along. Again, is this Jessica kind of remembering what this guy said and making the fantasy fit that, or are these things really happening? But if I owned an antique store, I certainly would not be uh, giving a sales pitch to have someone buy a lamp called Flowers of Evil. But what's interesting is that uh, while the um, four of them are um, hanging out at this uh, new property that they own, there's this really strange scene and as when they're all in the lake and they're all soaping each other up and it's very bizarre and uh, it's a scene I've never seen in a movie before or since and take what you want from that if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But there's a interesting moment where Jessica's swimming out into the lake and she sees like this vision of uh, this woman in white at the bottom and she freaks out and, and, and her friends are all on the pier and she's uh, – you know, just kind of screaming out that, that there's something in the water and she needs to get out. And she's, you know, it's funny because when I was watching this scene, I thought this is the real that the director showed Universal to get the Jaws 2 job <laughs> that he was unfortunately fired from. But I was like, I was like that, that whole sequence plays so much like a Jaws film. It's not even funny. Yeah, but it predated Jaws by like, what, five years. Right. So it was pretty good. Right, exactly. Yeah, as soon as I put this movie on, because we didn't say that the movie – begins with a, a frame. It's a flashback uh, for almost all of the film. So we have Jessica sitting out in this lake and her voiceover. As soon as I started this film up last night, my wife goes, is this a movie where somebody's going to grab somebody else's legs from underneath the water? And I said, yeah, yeah, pretty much it's one of those. She's like, okay, I'm going to go in the other room. <laughs> so just that <laughs> idea of the 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 thing coming up from the water and grabbing you just that is enough for some people so um yeah that was pretty funny you know, actually what i thought of as i was watching that where she's out in the boat in the middle of the lake and sort of the way it's framed and i think the lighting on it and of course i'm, I'm probably not seeing the best clear print of it for some reason it wanted to remind me of like one of the early friday the 13th films where you know someone's in the boat and in the middle of the lake there's nothing around you know i was just like oh okay uh when when is the kid popping out of the water and gonna take her down in slow motion exactly it's funny you say that rob because while you were getting that impression when when they're first moving into the house i kind of was thinking about uh, the opening scenes of uh, kirsi's family moving into the house in hellraiser (laughs) Because it looks exactly the same with them carrying the stuff up the stairs and into the bedrooms and stuff. This really does play on a lot of classic horror themes, which I find to be very effective. And you're right, Rob. The print that I saw was pretty bad as well. There's an even worse one that's out there on YouTube showing the movie in whole. Apparently, this has come out on DVD, and I'm not sure if it's out on Blu-ray. Do you know, Cameron? Uh, I have the DVD. I don't think it's on Blu-ray yet. How does it look on the DVD? Pretty clear. Uh, It is in widescreen, so that's always a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, because the print that's out on YouTube, it has all of the the look of a made-for-TV 1970s film, which is not a bad thing necessarily, but it just does have that look of budget restraint going on with it, even though 
it does seem to be fighting against that budget quite often. That was the thing that I was saying. It does have that look. And then with the other thing with them, with the house, and I know it's not a complete sort of, you know, one-to-one match in that way, but I was also thinking Texas Chainsaw in the house, you know, where they come up to the house kind of thing. And and I know it's an old trope, but that's the thing with this with this film being where it is in terms of 70, 71 when it was made, is that – there's a lot of stuff in here that I don't necessarily think that modern quote unquote uh, horror audiences would dig because, as you were saying, Mike, your friend who did see it was like, "Man, that thing is slow." And I think that people would be like, "All right, we need to, it's it's the old Joel Silver school of filmmaking. You need to have an explosion in the first reel. It's got to open with an explosion, then each reel has to have an explosion." So it's uh, modern horror films have a tendency to do that. They start with something, and then it's like every ten minutes you're going to get something. And here, it really takes a long time to build it, and it's more about atmosphere. And I think that most people today uh, have the attention span of you know gnats and they can't uh, sit still to think long enough to get into the atmosphere that being said i am shocked that hollywood has not tried to remake this yet yeah i saw when i was looking for images for this because you're right that poster is really terrible (laughs) and it does look like ruby d So I'm looking around for other poster images, and one of them, they must have redone the cover for the DVD. And I was like, oh, God, no, please don't tell me that there's a remake of this thing. And I, Because one, I didn't want to watch it, and two, I just couldn't imagine how they were going to butcher this movie. But I'm so glad that so far, knock on wood, they have yet to get their claws into this one. That poster image also reminded me of that image from Carnival of Souls where she's coming out of the out of the river yeah i can totally see that you're right though too rob as far as the whole idea of the pacing of this film i mean there's only what like six main characters to this thing even if you're you're counting the girl uh in the white dress as a main character and in a normal slasher film it's like okay what one dead before this two dead before this time and you kind of get you know you you almost count the beats of the film by the, the deaths and it's like you don't get that here. There's a long time before something actually, quote-unquote, happens. But there, to me, are enough little things that are going on and enough atmospheric things where it's like, okay, this is keeping my interest. I mean, this thing is only, what, 90 minutes long. It moves pretty darn fast. But, yeah, if you're not interested, if you don't buy into this film, let me just put this out there for the audience. If you're not with this film by the end of 15 minutes, I'd say go ahead and turn it off because you're not going to get into it. But for the other folks that are into it in those first 15 minutes, keep on going. It's a great ride. You get a dead pet before you get a dead human in this film from what I remember. I haven't seen something like that since the little girl who lives down the lane (laughs) where they killed a a little hamster type of uh, animal. But one thing that I find um, interesting is that while the film is a slow burn, it still does something that the later slasher films would do, which is the last 20 minutes pick up considerably and move fast. In the last 20 minutes, it seems like they're really kind of throwing everything in the kitchen sink in there. I will also like Rob, let's – you know, I agree with you, Rob. Let's not give away too much of the ending here. But yeah, definitely it feels like – all of those things that Jessica's been hearing and kind of putting together in her own head, it's either all of that stuff is culminating and she's seeing all these things or 
all of this stuff is happening and it is really coming to the fore and it's like okay this you know it, it really does move in those last little bit there's certain times where I actually had to freeze frame it while I was watching it today and just be like is that who I think that is is that is this what's happening and uh, you know I'm pretty sure that I'm following it but there are a couple fairly quick instances in there where it's like okay this that that's interesting i wonder when this happened and i'm trying to figure out the logic of it but again you have that supernatural aspect to it so it doesn't have to follow the logic so i was okay with that and bookends to me are always a very popular thing i mean i think i've talked about that so many times on the show how i really like bookends in film and if it's done well then they can be really cool and here it it works well, one of the things, and again, this is not to give away anything with the film, but if a movie starts with your main character giving a voiceover and you kind of see her, even though it's kind of tough to see if that really is her in the beginning, you know, because of the, the print quality and all that, at first I was thinking that it was kind of a dummy that was in this boat and just with the voiceover. When a character is giving a voiceover at that point, you're pretty sure that that character is going to live until the end. But then there are films like Sunset Boulevard where it kind of pulls the rug out from under you. So it's like, well, is this one of those? And at the end, you know, if this is her giving this voice, over is she even really safe so i kind of like that there's a lot of question marks even when it seems like things have been wrapped up yes 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 i think some people would say you know the film is 43 years old why are you holding off on the ending and i think part of the reason why we're holding off on the ending is that it really does build really well and i don't think it's one that's so well known that it's like, well, of course everybody knows the ending of that. So right. I, I think we're doing everyone a favor by not really going much further than this. And if nothing else, people who are interested in filmmaking or you know putting images and sound together should definitely check out the movie, especially for the scene that takes place, I think about two-thirds of the way through, where they're sitting around and this voiceover is talking about, uh, it's not the cake, it's not the cake. It's like the sound design is like, straight out of what would be later in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Just really, it's just grinding uh, audio. I love the music in this film. It is so bizarre. I mean, there's certain times where it's really kind of light and fluffy, and then other times with this kind of electronic edge to it. It's like, where did this come from? Which I was totally amazed by, because I'm thinking, okay, this is produced 7071. Where are they getting those sounds? Because, I mean, yes, there were synthesizers and things like that, but there weren't as prevalent that time as it was later on yeah some of the music actually reminded me of stuff from like my little eye where it's like the kind of low bass kind of thing you know hitting that brown note it's like oh wow this is really kind of intense one more thing about the whole idea of us not talking about the ending too is this film does a really good job of not telegraphing everything that is going to come you know there are so many films now where you can kind of unlock what's going to happen in at the you know the the eighty five minute mark the eighty minute mark whatever it is just by watching the first ten minutes of the film and luckily this is not one of those movies even though you do have this wrapper around it you still don't necessarily know what happens from point A to point C with that there's a lot of stuff that goes on and luckily it is isn't one of those where it's like okay well what's going to happen is this 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 and just lay out the whole plot it does not do that. 
I will say though that even though there is the wraparound and you and at least in my eyes I feel like the the film is worth seeing. Uh, I can understand because the the credits come rather abruptly, and so for some people that's a good thing, and for other people that's like this is bullshit. But but for me it was like oh yeah that that totally makes sense. Let's just get in and out. You know the moment the moment the uh, threat is over, movie over, right? <laughs> Exactly. And I like that it leaves you hungry for a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Doesn't stuff it down your throat. You don't get that extra Terminator ending, which has become so popular now, where it's like, oh, yeah, the the bad guy's dead. Oh, no, they're not. Here we go. Here's another whole freaking battle here. You know, it's like that ending of Scream, where it's like, okay, you're going to get into the cliches. Luckily, this movie is about a cliche. So, but yeah, there are too many where it's like, oh, no, they're not really gone. Let's go. Can we talk a little bit about the character of Emily? She's rather uh, <laughs> interesting and twisted, to say the least. And kind of cute, too. Yeah. Although I do I, – I fail to believe that since they spent so much time looking at that picture – or uh, there's like a, a frame picture – that they wouldn't have seen the resemblance to her like earlier in the film. <laughs> I was almost hoping that they would have used a different picture earlier in the film and then kind of switched it up so that the face does look more like her as the movie goes on. But I think that would have been asking a little too much. You know, at first she just it comes across as this very kind of hippie, uh, down to earth girl that everyone wants to hang out with and play the cello with, apparently. Uh, but then as the film goes on, I think that her. She she turns that character into something quite sinister and believable as a as a threat, and that's that's a hard thing to do. That's a huge arc for let's just say you know a uh, you know a newcomer actress in the early seventies. I was kind of surprised. I did not know that she was married to Alan Arbus for a little while. Did you know that one, Rob? I did not know that. And as you yeah. know, I'm uh, I'm an Alan Arbus fan because of. Uh Robert Downey Sr. Got married to him back in 1977 and stayed with him until he passed away last year. Wow. Well, speaking of Alan Arbus, maybe we need to put Greaser's Palace on the list. Oh, there you go. But we'll probably get to it around 2017, so. If that early. What did you think of the, uh, the overall acting in the film? I mean, I, I know it's 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 good, it's passable to good, but I mean, w- w- did any of it bother you? Because at the beginning, I think a lot of people are annoyed that Jessica is just constantly smiling through like the first twenty minutes of the movie. I think that the movie lives and dies with Zora Lampert's performance as Jessica, and to me, she does a great job. But I can see where people might get annoyed but for me that whole idea of her smiling is just trying to keep those demons out there's that moment where she's trying on all these new clothes up in the attic and i just kept thinking like honey you can keep trying on new looks but your disease will always be there her disease that's not very nice sorry to me and obviously we're looking at it through a different lens than if we were going to the theater to see it in 1971 i'm looking at it through the lens of all the 70s horror films i've seen and not knowing exactly where it was going to go, it's like this is on par with the acting I've seen in other stuff, if not better, because some of the, you know, the low budget stuff in that era is kind of rough. I mean, they've already brought it up already, but even you know some of the actors in Texas Chainsaw are kind of hard to deal with, you know, in terms of their acting. The guys who are in this are kind of flat to me a lot of the time. Um, 
but really this movie is mostly about the women i mean d- despite the lack of women in town you know you have these really strong female protagonists between jessica and emily and you really don't need a whole lot more this movie kind of revolves around them especially jessica and like i said i think that she does a smash-up job Okay, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first with director of Let's Scare Jessica to Death, John D. Hancock, and the second with screenwriter Lee Calcium. after these important messages. In 2012, a team of elite reviewers were assembled to gather the menliest movies and video games and overall pop culture that humanity has ever produced. They vanished into the depths of thrift stores and bargain bins looking for the ultimate thrill. Lost VHS gems, retro games, and unsung classics seemingly never to be heard from again. However, if you need them, if you have nowhere else to turn, and if you can find them, you can hire the entertainment team. I'll watch a Serbian film, but I'm not watching Hulk Hogan fuck something. Show Americans that you can't hold down two jobs. And three dicks. Uh, this movie's more fun to think about than it than it was to watch. What the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> I still like Howard the Duck, so who, what do I know? You, uh, you baste the turkey, you eat the stuffing, and fuck you, Chelios. People try thing, comma, because they just don't want it enough. Who do I have to fuck to get off this set? What flavor is Asian? <laughs> did he put soy sauce in it? Actually, I'm not entirely sure why I made that sound so dramatic and overcomplicated. They're not hard to find at all. All you have to do is go to iTunes and type in Mentertainment Weekly, and it should be the first thing that pops up. And Mentertainment Weekly is part of the Legion Podcasts Network. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B movie reel. Do something. Shoot it. Shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> that about describes it. Yeah. All right, everybody, stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones, the ones that air on Saturday night. Be known throughout the ages as an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator. A uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from <laughs> flying limbs. I called them. it in my notes. What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since they've been over two hundred of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. At this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good party cinema related stuff go here for the cinema come to us for the laughs afterwards we hate movies every tuesday let me ask you a question are you getting enough i bet you'd love more right well adamneve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, 
a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. You seem to have had quite an amazing childhood as far as you were really exposed to the arts pretty early. Am I reading this right? Yeah, my father was a was a musician. I, I was going to be a musician, too. I wasn't exposed much to painting and that kind of thing, but to music and, and uh, theater and that kind of, I was, yeah, and movies. How did you get into theater? I uh, was going to be a... Uh, a violinist, and I went one summer to uh, there's an orchestra associated with the Boston Symphony in, in Tanglewood, and I, I was like in my mind a kind of hotshot violinist from Chicago. I was you know the associate concertmaster of the Chicago Youth Orchestra and that kind of thing, right? But I got to Tanglewood, and there was a 13 year old boy that was about 10 times as good as I was. That troubled me, so. I decided I'd better find something else to do. I went to the, the following fall. I, I went to Harvard and, and uh, started getting interested in theater. And, and uh, I started directing at Harvard. And I, I did uh, actually quite a few plays there. And there was no faculty supervision at all. So you were running it yourself. And that was, I think, wonderful training. And uh, people from New York came up and saw my work and then I had several very powerful mentors that helped me get started in the theater. When I got to New York, Harold Clerman, who was one of the founders of the group theater, got me into the actor's studio and recommended me to producers and gave me a list of plays to track down. And Eric Bentley, who was like the top critic at that point, uh, recommended me to producers and got me my first job. And I did a I did a hit off Broadway when I was 22 that he had helped me get set up. So I teach now, I teach film uh, for the last couple of years at Columbia College in Chicago, and I try to stress to my students the importance of mentors because uh, it, it, in my career it made all the difference. You worked a few times with Tennessee Williams, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very happy, I mean, not entirely happy. He could be quite tempestuous, but yeah. Uh, he, that was a wonderful relationship, and uh, you know, John Lahr has a book that's coming out now about Tennessee that I, I'm really looking forward to. He's, I think, I've seen a lot of it as he was working on it, and it's 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 going to be a great book. And I'm glad that uh, finally Tennessee is being reevaluated because, you know, in the course of his life, he he started off so magnificently, and then when the play started to be less good. The critics attacked him like they, they, you know, if somebody new had written Milk Train or two-character play, they would have 
uh, raved about it, but because it wasn't as good as Glass Menagerie or Streetcar or Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, it, they they felt cheated and and came down on him very hard, and it was very painful for him. Uh, it's it's nice to uh, to have Lar finally. He even kind of vindicates some of the later plays too. I mean, uh, it, it's a real appreciation of the man's work. So, how did you kind of make that move from plays into film? You see Lawrence of Arabia and one thing or another, and you, you kind of always want to make films, right? And I've I've got a grant from the American Film Institute to do a short. Uh, I you know I send them all my theater reviews, and I got I got Tennessee to write him a letter, and uh, Gregory Peck, who, you know, I mean I I I worked I lobbied for a grant, and got it, and um, made a short that was nominated for Academy Award called Sticking My Fingers Fleet My Feet about businessmen that play touch football in Central Park based on a New Yorker short story. Uh, that Actually, uh, John Lahr and I wrote it together. I mean, we adapted it together. He had recommended it to me, and we, we did the screenplay for it together. That got me started. Then people... That got passed around. The executives at that point were all like Kennedy fans, and they were all into playing touch football. So it it really uh, struck home with uh, people at film companies, and uh, they started to, you know, I started to get offered things. So you're pretty hotshot theater guy. Your first film out, you get nominated for an Academy Award. This is pretty amazing here. <laughs> Getting recommended by Tennessee Williams and everything. Yeah, this is crazy. And, well, and then actually, you know how Jessica came about was William Wyler's daughter, Kathy Wyler, still alive, and produced a film or two. Saw it. It was passed around first between acquisitions people and uh, script readers at the various studios. And she, I think I don't know where she, she was working for Joe Levine, right? Right, and uh, somebody, at, you know, the development person for the Mirishes, I probably sent it to her, said, you know, you ought to look at this, this guy's good. And she recommended me to the Mosses, uh, Charles Moss Sr., Charles Moss Jr. They owned the Criterion Theater, which was the big theater on, you know, for, between uh, 43rd and Broadway, like which would be like where... Lawrence would open or Dr. Zhivago or that kind of thing. And they had about, I don't know, maybe eight or ten more theaters around Connecticut and New England. They wanted to make a scary picture. You know, on her recommendation, they met with me and offered it to me, and I, I took it on. The draft I was given was like a parody of a scary picture. I didn't like it very well, but I, I mean, I wanted to do a feature, so here was a chance. So I said, "Well, I, what I'd I'd like to do, I'd like to rewrite this and make make it a, make it scary." And they said, "Okay." So I went back to my house in Sneedless Landing, which is in a kind of scary place <laughs> overlooking the Hudson, about forty minutes up the river, and rewrote it and put in things from my childhood. My, my, my in addition to being a musician, my father father also had a fruit farm and he was very involved in pesticides and spraying and so I put in a lot of of stuff that came from my childhood on a on a fruit farm and he played the double bass so I made the guy and the the husband and uh, Jessica have this kind of ominous coffin-like bass case and 
I made it my own. I, I put in a lot of details from my own life. And I think that that, that kind of made it interesting and made it unique in some way. Yeah, there's a real threat there from nature, it feels like. Nature and especially the water, of course. Yeah, I, I felt that as I was writing it. I scared myself in certain passages, that the scariness of, of losing your mind, that there's actually something evil about the world, which is, you, you, you know, you don't diffuse necessarily. I said, okay, I'm going to be doing a scary movie. So I bought a 16-millimeter projector and rented a bunch of Hitchcock films. And I sat there in my living room and watched them, very, you know, stopping and starting and making notes and this and that. And that's one of the things, of, to some degree, about his his films is that evil is not finally diffused at the end. It's not always. Sometimes it is, but it's not always. Everything's not all right. There's there's a real sense of of uh, something ominous about the world. Right. Yeah. Norman sitting there with that skull face kind of coming through and everything. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, right. Did you ever have bad experiences with the water, or did you grow up near water? No, I mean I, I I'm you know nine miles from Lake Michigan and swim happily. But I, I'll tell you that we shot <laughs> bad experiences with the water. Shooting Jessica was one of them. I mean, it was um, we finally shot those lake scenes in in November, and the water was so cold. So no, I'm I'm comfortable in the water but you know i mean you, you put your imagination into things and you start to feel that that uh you know you you there's a certain amount of of hypno uh, self-hypnosis in creative work don't you think that you you kind of um for the purposes of that project you uh, get yourself thinking in certain ways so was Mr. Moss, was, had he produced anything at this point? No. Or was this kind of his freshman? Okay. What was he like as a producer? Well, there were two. There was the father and the son. I mean, the father was clearly in charge, but absent. He, he plays one of those, um, one of the guys with a bandage on his neck on the porch of a certain scene in Jessica. But but the son was there, and uh, it was his first picture. And, and uh, I went out of my way to get along with him and did. You know, I would at the end of every day. I'm, I made sure that we met and talked about the day's work and the next day's work. And I also was impressed. I had never dealt with people in exhibition before. And coming from the theater, where you, you know, you have previews or out of town tryouts or this or that, you get used to uh, depending on an audience to tell you how to shape the thing on an audience reactions, right, night after night. And a lot of people in the movie business don't have as firm a sense of that as people who own theaters. I mean, the mosses were able to say, okay, in this scene, this is where they'll all go up and, and buy candy, right? So maybe you want to shorten that scene. I mean, I felt they had a grip on, on what people would, uh, what would scare people. I mean, they said, could I please put a seance in it? I said, well, it doesn't make much sense, but okay. Why Why do you want to say it? Well, because it, people like that. So I did. And I'm, I'm glad I did. I mean, it doesn't always pay not to listen. And in this case, I, I was impressed through the whole process that uh, that, that they had a real grasp of, of, of audiences. It was They also had, because they had these, the big Criterion Theater, right, They where the ushers all dressed in usher outfits, 
that when we would send opticals out from the editing room, and, and the ushers that they employed, being kind of minimum wage people and probably old employees, they were all kind of ghoulish. So when we'd sent that, <laughs> there was a certain amount of messaging that these ushers provided for us. So our opticals were often delivered by some ghoulish guy in an usher costume. It helped. So they were perfectly fine with you kind of taking this comedy and turning it into a very yeah. effective scary film. I think they too wanted to make a scary film. I, th- I think they they saw the advantages of that. And so why did you take the Ralph Rose name for this one? Because I shouldn't have. In addition to things like seances, they also insisted on some things that uh, I, I thought really didn't make sense, like that little girl in white that's running around. And I thought, it was one thing to direct it. It's another thing to conceive of it. <laughs> so I thought, well, why not use another name? I, I, it was pointless. It was a mistake. What was it like casting this film? Well, it was great fun because we, we were planning on having nude scenes that never materialized. Uh, but so we had a lot of nude auditions. It was great fun. Charlie Moss and I just day after day saw nude women. It was good. There's worse things in the world. <laughs> You have such strong acting in this, especially Zora Lampert. I'm really impressed with her. You know, I'd seen her do a, a Broadway. She was hilarious in a Broadway play called Look We've Come Through that Charles Grodin directed. And then I saw her do The Daughter and Mother Courage, and that really just sold me. And I, I, I took her out a couple times, too. So I knew Zora. And I also knew Mary Claire. Mary Claire had, had worked on a play that I did. So these were two people I know, and Barton I had done, you know, ten, twelve things with in the regional theaters in New York, and and I'd done a play uh, with uh, the Kevin that played the, their friend. So th- these were actors that I knew. Now, when you got the script, obviously it didn't have the name "Let's Scare Jessica to Death." Did this? What was your title for it? Jessica, I thought. Oh, my God, Paramount wants to call it Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Okay. But, boy, were they right. I think it was... I, I don't know if it, who, if, it, if it was Frankie Blondes or some PR guy there, but it was a very smart... It was a they a very, very smart campaign. The whole graphics, the whole thing, were they, they added an enormous amount to it. With that title, I kept waiting for them to be... Like, I know, to scare it to death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I did... The title doesn't make much sense, but... <laughs> I kept thinking, okay, now is the husband in on it? Does he right, actually right, know sure. this other woman that was at the house? Yeah, or is, right. is it the locals? But right. it actually was good because it kept me guessing. Right, I guess. So other than cold, how was the shoot? Well, the shoot was, you know, we made it for a quarter of a million dollars. So I think we shot 25, 26 days, something like that. It was fast and hard and extremely hard work and long hours. And uh, I, I think I, f- I fired the first DP after a week and got somebody else. But we were in old Saybrook, Connecticut. I don't, it, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's very pretty. And we were staying in a nice motel. We made, we made sure to have a nice place for people to stay. It was uh, a fairly happy set. Probably my best friend was the line producer, Bill Bottolato. Uh, I mean, he became my best friend, and then went on to, you know, he to do Bang the Drum Slowly and About Schmidt and Top Gun and a whole, you know, whole bunch of pictures. Weeds. It was pleasant. It was a very pleasant shoot. 
you know, when you're working on on scary stuff with gore and blood, and uh, it's it just it's it's kind of technical too, you know. Charlie Moss and I worked out the mechanics of that woman that you know in the wedding dress that comes up out of the water. We worked that out in the, in the swimming pool of the motel where we were staying with cement blocks on the bottom and pulleys and, and how to you know how to make her go up and down and make the draft the dress waft in the water just right and the hair and that kind of stuff. That was the that's the only what was what else was hard. Well, the mole that they they got me a mole, but it it died and Bottolato covered up that the fact that the mole he told me it was sleeping day after day because it never moved. And it's a little terrarium or whatever they added in, right? Yeah, I think he's sleeping. Right? But then it's like, <laughs> it's like so a Monty Python up, skit. We ended up with a mouse. I felt it was a betrayal, but what can you do? Stunt mole. <laughs> That's right. How did you arrive at Orville Stolber uh, doing the music? Because that is an amazing score. I had done a play with Orville off Broadway. And then he did the uh, the score for that short that I did. So he was a logical choice for this, yeah. And then we, we got uh, a guy with a Moog synthesizer, Walter Sear, to kind of add things to Orville's uh, more melodic elements. Yeah, it seems kind of ahead of its time at times, just that yeah, yeah. droning and the electronic sound and so ominous. Yeah. yeah. How was the film received? Well, it, it, it made a lot of money. It made a, a lot of money, you know. Make something for a quarter of a million dollars, and it grosses twenty million, something like that. It's you know, played all over the country. My father loved it. My mother loved it. You know, it was. These are the things that matter, right? <laughs> <laughs> Did I read right that you didn't have the voiceover in uh, in the screenplay? Is that true? No, that's well. Hmm. Uh, I said, well, she hears. You know, the, the, she hears voices. I had. I didn't have what the voices were, and yeah, I wrote I wrote those during the editing process and recorded them. Yeah. Oh no, yeah, the whole voiceover, the, the yeah, her talking. No, that was uh, not in the screenplay at all. That's such a a major part of it, and just yeah, uh, I know, I know that rhythm of it is just it's yeah. hypnotic. Well, I had I had used a voiceover in the in the short that I did too. And and I also I also did in Bang Them Slowly. So for a while I was you know having, believing in voiceovers. So yeah, to do a project as high profile as Bang the Drum Slowly, the next one. I mean, I know that Michael Moriarty and and De Niro were not the people that they would be at that time, but that still seems like a pretty big leap to go from Let's Scare Jessica to Death to this fairly high profile picture. It wasn't when we made it. No, it was an independent thing. Just a guy from Chicago with a million dollars, and you know. I guess just because it has become the film that it has right. become. It, it was a wonderful book, you know. I mean, it was. Uh, it had uh, the status of that to some degree, but no, it was. It was something that had rattled around forever, and nobody had made. And you know, people said baseball and cancer. You know, everybody thought films about sports, you know, didn't make money. That was the baseball pictures never made money. So that was uh, why it was hard to get made. The 70s was like the king of, of sports movies, though. Like I, I guess maybe you kind of kicked it off there. Yeah, it was later. Later, yeah. North Dallas 40, the Bad News Bears picture. Yeah, that was I mean, all, all later. All later. Yeah. yeah. 
So yeah, I guess you were ahead of your time there. Well, you know, it's like fads come and go. You know, I had a, a very good friend, uh, Don Graham, who was, you know, just retired as the publisher of the Washington Post. And before he took over, before he went to work for the paper, he was a cop for two years in Washington D.C. And he wrote two wonderful screenplays for me about being a cop. And I took him. You know, I was here. I'd, I'd done this short, right? And everybody said, "Oh, let me I, 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 let me read your next project. What do you want to do next?" Right? So I gave him these screenplays about being a cop in Washington, right? No, movies about cops don't make money. Well, and then of course, uh, Serpico and Lethal Weapon, and I mean, it, for a while, all they were making were cop movies. So I mean, it's it, it's like skirt lengths. I mean, it's the you, know, you have to catch these things at the right, have the the rising wave you need, right? Now you said you've been teaching. Is Swan Song is that related to your teaching at all, or is that independent of that? It's independent of that. Can you tell me a little bit about the film? Well, it's a, it's a story about a, a grandmother who is reaching the end of her life and wants to pass on everything she knows and feels to her 13-year-old granddaughter who's not at all receptive. You, you know, you can't get the girl off her iPad and she's troubled. And it's it's a, a kind of a generational story like that. It's turned out terribly well. I'm very proud of it. it I think uh, it's it's almost the best thing I've done. I think. I mean, I'm 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 very high on it. We're just starting to screen it for people now. I've previewed it in Kansas City and Chicago and various places, and the preview cards are the highest I've ever had uh, in terms of you know percentage of excellent and very good and will recommend. And so I'm 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 feeling very happy about that. My wife, Dorothy Tristan, plays the grandma. I was going to say, this is another film that Dorothy Tristan wrote. Right, right, yeah. So you have a writer for a wife. That's got to be convenient for a filmmaker. It is good. It's like a cottage industry. Do you get first dibs? You bet. I was curious if you were using this as kind of a, a teaching tool for your students, or if you invited them down to kind of see how a real movie works, or well, how no, if some that of them was... actually Some of them uh, worked on the crew, yeah. How long have you been teaching at Columbia? Two years. And you're down in Indiana, and you live there and commute up to Chicago? Well, it's it's like an hour and 20 minutes. Not too bad, I guess. Once a week, not bad. Can you tell me about filmmakers? Well, it's 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 just the LLC that we've used to... Uh, we've done... This is the third film we've done with filmmakers. We did uh, A Piece of Eden and Suspended Animation, and now this. And we have... Because I did, I did a picture here on where I live, uh, I did Prancer, which uh, about a little girl and a reindeer. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's much loved and plays every Christmas. And, and people around here, it, it's, a, it's a huge deal around here. So we have tremendous support from this local area. I mean, like these pictures that we've done here, the, the local automobile dealer provides cars for people to, you know, for the crew and cast and crew to drive without on deferment where they don't get paid unless the film makes money and motels provide housing and restaurants feed the cast and crew on that same basis so we we have it's like you know a perfect place to make a movie without spending a lot of money that sounds terrific it sounds so supportive oh my god yeah and uh, you know 
we'll ask for extras and we'll, you know, 1,200 people show up and they bring their own lunch and you don't have to pay them and they come back the next day, half of them. And, you know, I mean, it's really good. <laughs> I wanted to know how you got started with writing. I, I was writing since I was 12 years old. My mother was a, was a, wanted to be a playwright. She ended up being a housewife. My father was a lawyer, but they loved theater. And when I was a kid, the plays opened out of town in Philadelphia. So I saw Guys and Dolls, and then I saw My Fair Lady, and I saw West Side Story all before they came to New York. And it was magical. And I always, the theater's my favorite venue. And so I was writing since I was a kid. I always wanted to write. I went to Yale Drama School as a um, the graduate school just for a year as a directing major because I wanted to also like to direct. But I had a great playwriting teacher there, John Gassner, and came to New York. And I got into television because one has to make a living. And television was good then. Actually, it wasn't as good when I started, but the comedies, you know, starting back with the, the Dick Van Dyke show, the earlier comedies were fairly terrible. They all had laugh tracks, you know, uh, Bewitched and uh, uh, I Dream of Jeannie and stuff. That they really don't hold up. But the shows of the late 60s and 70s, which included All in the Family, were wonderful. And I got lucky. I got, went out there to do a play at the Mark Taper Forum in which Bob Balaban appeared. Norman Lear was looking for writers who could write for a live audience. In other words, it had to really be funny. <laughs> so I met with him, and, and that's when all, all the family had been on for six months. It went on in mid-season of 1971 on February. And I went out there in the summer to do the play, and I interviewed, talked to him, and I wrote a script, and he liked it, and then I kept writing them. But I never moved to California. I always wrote them from from New York or Connecticut, where I had a house, and then went out for the rehearsals and the taping and kept it up. I finally only moved to California recently, or fairly recently, it was 20 years ago, when I had a show of my own on with, uh, with um, Gene Wilder, uh, really about my family. Uh, so I spent three years there, but I, I really hate L.A. And, uh, and the business has changed. It's no longer, you know, I didn't, you know, no longer individual writer writing a script. I would write a script and then you know, they would have a couple of editors on, but now it's a gang of people in a room. So it's fine for sketch writing, you know, like the old Sid Caesar show or the stuff that Mel Brooks used to do. But I don't, it doesn't have much integrity, and I think most of these shows sound alike. But, um, which is what I like about playwriting. I go in my room, I close the door, and I create this world, and it's quite fun. Now, did I read right that you had uh, written for the Alfred Hitchcock Hour as well? I did. That was my first job. I, Got a, what I guess is a scholarship or some kind of a grant. When I, after I wrote some plays in New York, the, the producer, Dick Barr, um, had some relationship with Universal, and they, they sent writers out there to, to, to uh, kind of intern with television uh, shows at Universal. And I interned at the Hitchcock show. I was very lucky. There was a Brit named Gordon Hessler, who was the line producer, the uh, producer of the show. Oh, God, his name just dropped out of my head. He's still alive at 100 years old. And he read the plays of mine. He said, well, you can write one of these. You don't have to intern. So I wrote a Hitchcock. Then I wrote two more. Uh, it was the last year was on the air with the hour show. That was really fun. It wasn't comedy, but it was fun. It was great. And then I came back to New York, and I wrote a cop show called NYPD, 
which was a half-hour show shot in 16-millimeter kind of cinema verite on the streets of New York. And then I told you the story of when I went back to L.A. to do a play with, that Bob was in. Um, that's when um, All in the Family was on and because it actually helped have being a playwright because it got me, got me, got me writing for him. So I span quite a distance in, in television and watched it evolve from when I first started with Hitchcock to, you know, to what it's become now, where you know there are 170 million channels, so, and most are reality shows. So, how did you write um, Blood of the Iron Maiden? Which I know as is this trip really necessary? Oh, for God's sake! I don't think I've ever seen the damn. Was it? I, I met a uh, director whose name I can't remember, but you probably know it, out there in one of my various trips to California. I don't know where I met him, and he said, I'm putting together this film. And I wrote it, and I remembered it shooting, because was, it was somewhere on Santa Monica Boulevard I went to the shoot. But I don't know whatever happened to it. Yeah, it was lost for a lot of years, but I think they finally um, a copy yeah. of it has finally been uncovered. I can't imagine it's very good, but I don't... You know, I don't remember much about it. Uh, whereas, let's get Jessica to death with a more more interesting situation because Charlie Moss, whose father owned some theaters in New York, movie theaters, wanted to make a movie. And I don't know how I met him. I think he saw a play of mine. I said, yeah, yeah, I want to do a movie, a horror movie. So I wrote, um, I wrote a, you know, a serious. No, I know. I wrote a satire. That's what I did. I wrote a satire. Um, a, um, a kind of a satire on a horror movie. Uh, it had a, I had a gay monster who came out of the water and then his, his hand came out of the water to grab people and then it, it would go limp and he, and it was silly. I had a house in Connecticut there, uh, Connecticut, where he ended up shooting it. All it's shot is that there's a shot of the, uh, the, the uh, Chester Headline Ferry and there's a shot on there in Chester, the, the cove in front of my house where Gretchen Corbett comes out of, who's, who became a friend. Actually, her daughter is a wonderful actress. I knew a lot of these people. And, was, and uh, what happened was that I think I wrote it in three days. I went up to Charlie's office and just kind of wrote it in a great stream. It was kind of fun. And then John Hancock came in, and I, that was it. John Hancock came in, and he made kind of a serious film out of it. I didn't like it much. I took my name off it. I put my father's name on it. My father's first and last middle name, Norman Jonas. Um, and then the film became successful. So what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. he made it into a kind of turn of the screw, which was interesting. So I, that whole idea, I, I started it as a lark. And then, so you, you, you just never know. You just never know. You, you, William Goldman wrote a book about it was about the Broadway theater, but um, he was a very successful writer in both screen and stage. And he basically said, nobody knows anything. I had read that one of the titles for the screenplay you wrote was It Drinks Hippie Blood. It Is that true? Blood. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's when it was a comedy. Because I had this monster and these hippies were camping out and it was, it was, you know, it was drinking their blood. And so, as you can see, that's more of a comic title. Uh <laughs> And then I, I don't know who changed the title, whether it was whether it was Hancock or uh, or whatever. But I, I mean, I'm fascinated by that transition. I can still picture that office it was on, on Broadway, sitting up there, 
pounding away on an old pipe, and they're just you know laughing and chortling and coming up with these silly ideas of um, how you know how to do a kind of satire in a horror movie, and having um, <laughs> having John. But a lot—I mean, a lot of the basic setup of the scenes and the characters are, were, were very similar, except that he treated it seriously. Uh, but I knew all these people: Kevin O'Connor and Mary Claire Costello. These are all people that we and I worked in in the theater. You know, it was all—it was a New York cast. So, and it was fun because, as I said, I was living there. I could go go watch the shoot, just drive out of my driveway, go around the corner, and watch them shoot. Were you welcome on the set and everything? Oh yeah. Oh sure. I mean, I, I've been thrown off of sets when I wrote, wrote for NYPD. I remember, it just depends on the director. I've had some wonderful directors. and I did a movie for Lee Phillips called The Comedy Company with George Burns and uh, Jack Albertson. And it was just fun because he's, he's a former actor and uh, it was just fun. Terrific. So, that, you know, movie making movies is pretty boring because you just do little pieces and you sit. Most of it's downtime. There's not much in the theater. You go in the theater, you rehearse a play. You're rehearsing. Everybody's working all the time. You're not waiting for the lights to be moved around and the cameras and the moving, blah, 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 blah. And um, it can be fairly excruciating. This is television, uh, at least the old or the sitcom television. It's much closer to theater because once, especially once they got tape in, you, you do the whole thing. You shoot the whole thing. And there's no stops. There's no allowed stop start once you, you know, on the night you shoot. What was it like working on the paper chase? Well, that was terrific. Uh, it was, you know, cable TV was new. Uh, that was great. I mean, basically, what was the producer's name? Lynn? Lynn Roth, was it? Lynn Roth. And what I would do is I'd call Lynn. I'd say, I got this idea. She said, fine, you know, write it. And you had a lot of freedom. First of all, it was a real hour. You know, a sitcom is 22 minutes. And an hour show is probably 50 or 48 or something because you have to the commercials. But there were no commercials on, this is early cable, there still aren't, on, on, on the HBO stations. But there weren't on this. And language, there was no language limit. I could use just about any word I wanted. And the subject matter could be more interesting. And I had um, this fabulous cast, you know. I met, the nice thing about it was I said, Lynn, you know, I'd like to shoot, why is his name drop out of my head from the original paper? The, uh, John Houseman? John Houseman. I said, you know what would be neat, Lynn? I'd like to do a whole paper chase with just John Hausman and whatever the lead character's name was, just stuck together, just the two of them. Because, you know, God, that's nothing to write a play. I'd written a play with a man theater guy with just two guys. That was two and a half hours. So um, it's fine. So I did, and then I got scared, and I had to break it up with a couple of scenes taking place outside. I had them snowed in in a snowstorm together. And so that's that was what was great about that show. I think I wrote three different things, and they were all issue plays. You know, one was about plagiarism. This was about I'm not sure what that one was about, but it was about he was a Hausman's character in the paper chase. He's a kind of a frightening guy. You don't get close to him. I said, Frank grind. They got to get. You know, they're stuck in the apartment for this whole snowstorm. Something's got to happen. Something personal, and that's what interested me. It's fun when you. And that was the same thing with the original All in the Family. You know, I could call Norman and say, Norman, I want to write a show about the Vietnam War, you know, about guns and butter, whether to spend it on guns or whether to spend it on good things. And that's when, that was the, um, I mean, winning script, actually. That was the one with Cleavon Little. And uh, Edith writes a song. Oh, no, the, 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 that wasn't the one that won the Emmy, but I think that may have been my first script. It was just fun. 
because you had that one-on-one. I just call somebody, you know, I got this idea, fine, boom. You know, you don't, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, that's what I always liked about All in the Family was the way that it could mix the humor and the serious issues, and you didn't necessarily know from one to the next episode what it was going to be like. No, and he demanded it. I remember once we were working, I was out there, and I was rewriting a script, and Norman walked in the office. He said, I'm not sure what this is about. You know, it had to be about something. That was important. Did it have some kind of, not message is a big word, but some kind of point to it. It's just not be a frivolous piece of comedy. Not there's anything wrong with that. But, uh, you know, sat- that Saturday night when you had Mary Tyler Moore, all in the family, and, oh, my God, what's um, <laughs> The stand-up comedian, the comedian, uh, uh, their CBS's lineup on Saturday night. People st- stayed home on a Saturday night because those shows were so good. Yeah, I was just saying the other day that I think one of the most frightening half hours of television I ever saw was the episode of All in the Family where Edith was raped. Yes, exactly. I came into Norman one day. I said, or I called him. I forget what it was. I said, Norman, this was uh, the election in 72. I said, can we get Archie somehow to endorse uh, George McGovern? <laughs> you know? I said, how can we do that? Because, you know, he's a hard right-wing fanatic. And, uh, I, I, it never happened, but that's the kind of thing we talked about. Um, how can we make this statement? And yet make it funny. You know, so I remember the, the I was out there writing when uh, Sammy Davis had called him and said, I want to do your show. And that's when he did this show where Sammy Davis left something in his cab and came out and gave him a big hug and a kiss. You know, he was uh, so, and that was fun. That shot of him kissing Archie is just you know, yeah. one of those indelible that's- TV images. Yeah. You know, you've written so many different types of television scripts when it comes to what you've written for the theater do you kind of jump all over with different genres as well yes i do yes i write um i just did a, a, a reading of a play here a rehearsal of a play yesterday this is just kind of a comedy about kids meeting online young kids the play I most recently was about an old girlfriend of mine bonnie franklin died last year year and a half ago and it engendered a play in me about about a really lifey person dying. And it actually turns out to be more of a comedy than anything else. But And uh, the best play I've written in the last, I don't know, maybe ever, was a play about Samuel Johnson, which uh, Richard Griffiths did a reading of in London in 2011, before he, obviously before he died. But I mean, you know, my, my jaw dropped him when I took my kids over and my wife. And he's one of the great British actors. And, uh, and Samuel Johnson, you know, was the probably the great intellect of the of the um, 18th century. I'm working on an opera. My son's a composer, and I'm working on an opera about St. Paul. I love historical plays. I wrote the play about Hitler and um, Churchill. I'm thinking about an idea of a play about the Versailles Treaty in 1919. I like writing history. I love doing research, and I like comedy. So I, you know, I just switched gears. doesn't matter. But, but in the theater, you get, you know, you have time. You have an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours to really get into a character, and that's what interests me. Have you ever adapted yourself for the screen? Yeah, I, I adapted a play I did at Manhattan Theater Club called Friends, and I wrote a screenplay for it, but it was never the director and kind of dropped it and disappeared. Getting a movie made is, is maybe the hardest thing ever to do. Maybe it's almost as hard as probably getting a job in Detroit, I don't know. It's impossible because movies it has very little to do with the script. It's all about 
packaging stars and things. And you know, I don't live there, so I'm not inside Hollywood. Uh, I wrote a, a screenplay about you know, there in in the fifties. There were camps for kids whose parents had been blacklisted. They were called the Red Diaper Babies, and there were special camps because they were they were derided so much when they were in regular public schools or wherever. So they wanted to be with like-minded people, left-wing. It's a fascinating situation, and I know people who've been to those camps. So I wrote a screenplay about it, and my agent is very hot on it, but it's impossible. I mean, you know, you know, movies are most movies are comedies are really awful. You know, about people throwing up and, I don't know, they're just terrible. I mean, I showed my kids a couple of weeks ago, we sat down and watched It Happened One Night, uh, which was 19, pretty early, I think it was 34. It's, it's brilliant. It's so smart. You see a comedy today and it's just, there's nothing smart about it. So comedy is really kind of smarmy. It's all very broad, you know, kind of juvenile. I can't remember the last time I saw a smart comedy, and yet you don't see stuff like Mike, his gal Friday, or Tracy Hepburn stuff, or a lot of great stuff that Cary Grant was in. I don't think necessarily that everything written years ago was better, but I don't see many movies that are that I want to see, particularly comedies. The dramas are, are some of the dramas are good, but that's true of television too. I think the drama series are better than the comedies now, more provocative. But for some reason, comedy has gone south. Of course, I'm concerned. Favorite playwright is George Bernard Shaw, so I have, <laughs> you know, that's that's real. That's great comedy and great wit. What do you think of this whole thing where people keep describing it as a, a golden age of television now with things like Breaking Bad and the cable shows that have kind of broken out? I think it may be the golden age of drama. It's certainly not of comedy. I think it's the toilet bowl comedy. I think the golden age of comedy was... For you know, was the late sixties and seventies. The drama now is better. You watch some of the stuff on. I, I, I was surfing the other night, and an episode of Bonanza came up. I mean, Jesus has had an awful show. You know, just awful, awful stuff. It doesn't. And so, the, yeah, I think it is probably a golden age of, of of dramatic television. Did you ever write for Mash? No, 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 uh, no. I didn't. That was a great show. But that's not the same period. My own website has, has a list of things I've written for, which is accurate. So just Google my name. So you said that you're working on uh, um, a play with your son right now? That he's doing the, yeah, I wrote a musical with him, which is uh, one. He's a, he's a classical composer, but he's also a throwback. The stuff he writes is more, sounds more like Mozart and Mendelssohn than all this atonal crap that they have today. And yet he's classically trained, so this stuff is very complex and interesting. And that's a hard throw, getting, Jesus, getting a musical on, you know, workshop it, and it takes forever. So, but it's been fun, great fun. As I said, when I was a kid, a little kid, I went to see Guys and Dolls, saw musicals, and I said, I want to do that. So, musicals are no good at now, anyhow. I mean, believe me, very, I can't, I'm trying to think of the last good musical I saw in New York. Other than Book of Mormon, I can't really think of many. Well, I didn't see Book of Mormon. I, I'd like to see it, but, um... Uh, other contemporary. I saw the one that won the Tony last year. wasn't was really pretty good. Uh, uh, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. It's not as good as the Alec movie, uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is fabulous. Much subtler. 
This is very broad, but it's a musical, so it's allowed to be broad. But I rather like it. Was there anything else I should ask you about Let's Scare Jessica to Death? I know it's like kind of a footnote for you. Well, I just nothing to know except that how, how it started out as one kind of movie, as you, because all you have to know is the old title. It started out as one kind of movie and turned into another. I mean, it's happened before. You know, a director gets a hold of something, and they're the last ones to hold on to it. It's a director's medium, even though the screenplay wouldn't, you know, the movie wouldn't exist without the writer. But the writer has no power in the movie, so once the, they buy it, they can do what they want with it. But it's happened more and more and more. But, uh, yeah, that's what's fun about that. It's kind of like I get a great laugh out of, out of what happened. And, but a lot of, you know, a lot of writers have had painful experiences with, with screenplays, which, because they, you once the studio buys it, then they, it's rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and thrown out and brought by, you know, it's, 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 it's tough. It really is tough. The nice thing about the theater is that the, the playwright never sells his play to the producer. He rents it. The producer just pays him and, and you know to, to option it, and then you get a percentage of the box office. But you never sell the rights to your play. You always own them. You don't make very much money necessarily either, but uh, unless it's a big hit. Whereas in the movie, you get paid for it whether it's a big hit or not. But you have control. driver of the hearse? No. But you must have. It's parked right here. No, I didn't. We are back. Thanks to Mr. Hancock and Mr. Kelchum for taking the time to talk to us. We'll have links over to where you can find out more about them over at our website, projection-booth.com. So this week we are talking about Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which we found out in the interview might have once been called It Drinks Hippie Blood, which to me I think still needs to be made into a movie. It sounds really bad, like... Like, if that was the case, if that was really the title, I mean, consider all the diseases you would get from that hippie blood. I mean, just, I don't even want to think about it. It sounds like AIDS and hepatitis and everything just all piled on top of each other. And if that film, if this film was uh, called that, I think there'd be more hatred towards it because that title promises a lot more bloodshed than what we get here. Yeah, I think it really would have been a different movie had Kelchum's uh, screenplay been filmed. I wish I could get my hands on that. I I think it would be uh, pretty entertaining. But I think Hancock did a good job of kind of turning it into a much more atmospheric film than this kind of um, almost horror parody, which kind of would have been weird had this been a horror parody in 1971 because it would have been almost at the start of a whole new horror cycle. I mean, this is right around Texas Chainsaw time. We don't have the slasher films that we're going to have with Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers and all these. So 
I, I would have been interested to see. I mean, at this point, the high watermark for horror is really uh, Night of the Living Dead just a few years prior. And I don't even know if the word had gotten out about that as much as it would, you know, as, as time went on. I mean, now it's a classic back then. I don't know how it was necessarily being viewed. This one does have a, a ton. If you look on IMDb, it's got just a ton of different names to it because I do think that Let's Scare Jessica to Death really is kind of a misleading title. As I said to both of those guys, it feels like that is implying that there's a plot going on. And I really don't necessarily see like this kind of, you know, to me, it's more like a gaslight thing where it's like, okay, we're going to scare Jessica to death and we're going to collect the insurance money. Kind of like, um, have you guys ever seen uh, death trap? The one with Michael Caine and um, uh, Christopher Reeve. Yeah. Yes. Because there's that moment in there where they're trying to scare Diane Cannon, if memory serves, to death. And that seems appropriate. Like, let's scare Diane Cannon to death could be another name for Death Trap. To me, the title sort of seems more, like you were saying, kind of plotty. And it also seems kind of cartoony. Like, for some reason, it sounds like a title of a film from, like, the early 80s that would sit on the shelf next to, like, I don't know, like, April Fool's Day, Happy Birthday to Me, uh, something like that. I mean, where it's, like, a bunch of teenagers, and they're in a in a fraternity or something, and they're like, oh, you know, it's the new girl or something. If they ever do remake this film, that's exactly what they would turn it into. Yeah, I can really see that of, like, oh, yeah, look at uh, Jessica. She's got this heart condition. Let's see what we can do to her. Or, or they just don't like her because she's like the, um, she's like the stuck-up prissy girl. You know, she would be like, like the preppy girl or something. You know, in the early '80s, sort of like horror sex comedy or something. You know, I think they'd also have it where the entire town were vampires. Yeah, I can definitely see that. This, I was reminded a couple times of this. Uh, of other like the town is in on it kind of thing as i was watching this like uh you had mentioned the wicker man there were some overtones to me of the wicker man and talking more of like the original and not the not the bees uh wicker man this is murder murder you'll all be guilty and you're doing it for nothing killing me won't bring back your goddamn honey oh no not the bees not the bees Ah! Out of my eyes! My eyes! And there were other things like, uh, I guess, like um, Race with the Devil. There's some, you know, collusion going on in there. So I could could see that. Um, I really was reminded a lot of Stephen King, and I don't know if it was just that idea of the northeastern town, or if I was thinking kind of like Salem's Lot kind of thing. But there were some overtones for that. And then um, trying to think of other films where people are coming back from an asylum and the way that they're treated in different films as well. I know that that's almost like a little subgenre, but I'll be damned if I can think of anything off the top of my head for it. Well, one thing I found interesting is that the house and uh, the surrounding locations for it is a popular tourist destination for film fans. Uh, much like the Halloween house or the Elm Street house in L.A., people actually go to this area to see this location, which is funny because I didn't realize this film was that well known. Now, there's a website out there. I think it's let's scare Jessica to death.net. Whatever it is, we will be linking to it from our website, projection-boot.com. And there's a section on there where it's like 
what's the first time you remember seeing this movie? And it is just chocked full of people responding to this. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize that this movie had such a following to it, but apparently it sure does. And there are just, I mean, this is old school. This website looks like it's straight out of like 1998, 1999. And it's got an old guest book, that kind of stuff. It's old GeoCity site. It, it almost is as bad as a GeoCity site. There's like this weird animated thing that's kind of floating around on screen. I'm surprised there's not like a Java applet. Is there a that's... hit counter? <laughs> no. And there's no animated GIF for the email either, but it, it's it's almost there. When I saw the website, I immediately thought back to a previous episode you guys had done about the uh, Phantom of the Paradise and, and, and remembered that fan website and just thinking to myself going, wow, you know, every single film out there, good or bad, is loved by someone. <laughs> I'll tell you a story on that. Uh, years ago, I met a director who's in Detroit. He's done some low-budget stuff. And he said that he was depressed one day because he just felt that his films weren't working and you know he wasn't doing all that well. And a friend of his took him to Blockbuster when Blockbuster was still around, put his arm around him and said, see all these movies on the shelf? Because every single one of these movies is someone's favorite film. So whenever you're feeling bad, just remember that somebody out there probably thinks yours is the best thing they've ever seen. That's very, very poignant, Rob. That's what I do. I I make bad jokes and I search for poignancy. And you talk about Louis Bunuel. Take two drinks because Mike said it. One for me. I was also reminded while I was watching this one a lot of some other – and I almost feel bad like saying low-budget horror films because so many horror films are low-budget. Like you're saying big-budget horror film – Kind of is a almost a, uh, an oxymoron a lot of times, but I was reminded of let's say more independent horror films when I was watching this. I was reminded of Alice, Sweet Alice, and I don't know if that movie has just been on my mind lately because we're going to be talking about the woman who was one of the stars of that when we talk about Liquid Sky next week, or if it's just that kind of atmospheric. Um, lower smaller film uh but yeah there were a lot of other ones as i was watching this i was like okay yeah i can really see some of these other films not necessarily taking from this one but kind of being inspired or using the same limited means to also get some really effective scares yeah i was reminded of um that talk in what 1993 when robert Rodriguez hit the scene about how you you uh figure out what your budget is and then you write to your budget rather than trying to like make star wars with like you know two thousand dollars and and that's one of this film's great strengths is it feels like they they got the location and then wrote the script uh around what they had so it plays to its strengths yeah and the use of a voiceover i mean voiceovers are cheap but in this case they did it really well and used it very effectively because voiceover can be used terribly as we all know <laughs> or it can be used absurdly as i said blast the silence it's kind of so over the top that it works but uh, at times it's too much uh which films do you think utilizes voiceover correctly let's say taxi driver right oh yeah blade runner sunset boulevard the third man and we've got the narrator in um magnificent ambersons talking about wells some more which I found effective. So there are more unsuccessful attempts than successful ones. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some unsuccessful ones now. Sometimes it's just lazy. Like, sometimes voiceover is in there because the filmmaker is lazy, I think. Or in the case of certain movies, they had no money. 
so they had to put it in and sometimes that doesn't work so it i don't know it's just odd it's it, you usually find it i think i think voiceover is kind of kind of something that you see more coming out of the radio era it seems like something like a golden age of hollywood more than you see in modern film although i did see um men women and children at the aspen film festival last week and there's this emma thompson voiceover which kind of works but at the same time i'm like why did they put that in there because it's totally disembodied she obviously has this huge british accent and everyone in the film is supposed to be from texas so I'm kind of I was a little bit confused by the choice of Emma Thompson, although she pulls it off. Was it a sequel to Stranger Than Fiction? No, because she does the voiceover in that, right? Mm, the know. one with Will Ferrell, where she's basically the writer, and we get to hear her writing the story as Will Ferrell is living it. Uh, okay, no, I didn't see that one. I have to say that it's really effective in most films noir, the whole idea of um, Philip Marlowe kind of narrating his own story, especially in, like, um, Murder, My Sweet. I remember Fight Club being effective, at least the first time I saw it. But I agree with you, Rob. A lot of times it is lazy because it's like it's almost like the filmmakers don't have enough money to film uh, scenes B, C, and D. And so to connect scenes A to E, they use the voiceover to get them there. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at 1982's Liquid Sky and be joined again by our good friend Skiz Sizzik. And before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Cameron Cloutier, for coming on the show. And Cameron, tell us a bit about Obnoxious and Anonymous and all the other stuff you're up to. Well, Obnoxious Anonymous is a website slash podcast that was created because uh, – 
I'm a filmmaker primarily, uh, but there's a lot of downtime when it comes to low budget filmmakers and stuff. So while I'm trying to like raise the money for my next project, uh, I'd like to just, you know, write an article or do a podcast about whatever uh, I decide to talk about that particular day or week, whatever. The title Obnoxious Anonymous comes from uh, reading uh, Yahoo message boards, ain't it cool message boards, where it's like people say the worst things you could ever imagine but they can say it anonymously, so it doesn't really matter. However, my podcast is usually like the nicest people uh, talking about stuff, so that's kind of just trying to be uh, ironic there. But uh, as for projects I'm working on, the big one uh, that I have been working on for a few years now is called Bird with a Broken Wing. Uh, there's a Facebook page for it. It's um, it's a true crime uh, story. Uh, it's a um, based on uh, the true life story of a girl named Janelle Lisa Cruz, who was the last known victim of uh, California's worst serial killer and and serial rapist that has to this day never been caught. And it's been, I think, about almost 30 years since she was killed and almost 40 plus years since his uh, crime spree started. And to this day, they still don't know uh, who did it. And um, I wrote the screenplay, uh, worked with her family. The film has gotten a ton of attention online and on ABC News and et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is, is that when people hear about it, when they see it being publicized like that, they just assume the film is already being made as opposed to still looking for financing. Um, I've had a series of producers come and go. Most of them just kind of come on to see their name in the uh, any press releases uh, done. And then after that, they kind of just go away when uh, the film kind of takes a little bit while to get going again. So if anybody's interested in, in knowing more about that, just go to the Facebook page, Burr with a Broken Wing. Also, so there is a Facebook page for uh, my website, Obnoxious Anonymous. Um, the website actu- in actuality is obnoxiousanonymous.wordpress.com. The YouTube channel is called Obnoxious and Anonymous, and that's where all the Skype podcasts are, um, including a uh, interview I did with Jennifer Lynch last year that uh, was highlighted um, by these good gentlemen when they did their Fire Walk With Me podcast. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and um, yeah, I just I, I appreciate all the support out there. Who are you calling gentlemen? You too. Man, he doesn't know us at all. You never listened to our Sallow episode, apparently. I have. Oh, wow. And we're still gentlemen. And what's interesting about that is I had completely dismissed that film until I uh, listened to your podcast, and then that made me want to uh, rewatch the film. So if you know, there's one thing about you guys that I just adore is is that no matter how many times I've seen a film, if I hear you guys talking about it, I want to see it again, and that's you know a great thing. That is high praise indeed, Mike. How much did you pay for that? The payment on PayPal hasn't yet cleared, so I might be able to cancel it. Right. It takes 17 days. Well, thank you. Yes, thanks for coming on the show, and we'll have links over to all of your stuff over at our website, projection-booth.com, and we will have uh, links over to where people can find out more about John D. Hancock and Lee Kelchum. So thank you to those guys for coming on the show, and I want to thank everybody for listening. So if you want to help out with the show, feel free to go over to the projection-booth.com website. Over there, there's a list of three things that we have under sponsors. There's a PayPal button where you guys can donate money to directly to us and then there are ads for audible.com and adamandeve.com clicking on either of those and signing up with them will give us a little kickback as well as some uh, cool free stuff for you so you help us out and we'll keep tickling your earbuds every week here on the projection booth
faces A man of the cross Whose grace is away from words you never understand Thank you.
I sit here and I can't believe that it happened. And yet I have to believe it. Nightmares or dreams. Madness or sanity. I don't know which is which. 